Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Alex again with a great addition to our Millennium Live podcast series. We have our keynote speaker for digital healthcare and patient experience transformation assembly, Dr. Stephen Clasco. I'm really pumped to have Dr. Clasco on the series because in the midst of the pandemic, all the things that are happening in healthcare, the things that he's done in his life, and all the exciting things that he's done in his healthcare journey, I think for the type of things that we talk about on this podcast, he's a perfect addition. What he's about, what he's doing at Thomas, Thomas Jefferson University. And just before I bring him on, I wanted to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Clasco. He's been a pioneer in using technology to build what's known as health assurance, not just sick care. As president and CEO of Philadelphia-based Thomas Jefferson University, and Jefferson Health since 2013. He has led one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions based on his vision of reimagining healthcare and higher education. Under Dr. Clasco's leadership, Jefferson Health expanded from three hospitals to 14. His 2017 merger of TJU with Philadelphia University created a preeminent professional university that includes not just health, but fashion design and architecture. In 2020, Dr. Clasco was named the first distinguished fellow of the World Economic Forum, and he also is going to be co-chairing the WEF Board of Stewards for the Future of Digital Economy and New Value Creation. He's got a number of books out, which um, we're going to be promoting that you guys obviously can get copies of, which he may talk about on this particular podcast as well. And in addition to being a distinguished author, he's working with several digital health companies on the vision of health assurance using new technology to keep people well instead of waiting to provide sick care. So that's a little bit of background on Dr. Clasco. But with no further ado, doctor, thanks so much for joining the podcast. As I mentioned before, we're, we're super thrilled to have you and I'm looking forward to chatting with you for the next hour. Well, thanks, Alex. It's great to be on. It's, a, it's actually a great time. Uh, you know, healthcare is going through uh, what I think will be a, a golden age of uh, disruption and transformation. So if you're, if you're willing to take the ride, it's going to be an exciting time. Well, I know a lot of the people that are listening today are, are embracing for, what, for what's coming and what's currently taking place in terms of changes in healthcare right now. Before we get into kind of talking about the industry, what you've done and what you're doing inside your own organization, I always like, especially with people like yourselves with, with such a uh, distinguished and reputable career in, 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 your, in your particular profession, I like to dig deep a little bit about and give and give listeners more of an idea of kind of where you're from and how kind of your journey became your journey, how you got into health and specifically the parts of the industry that, that you specifically are, are most passionate about. So if you could give our listeners, Dr. Clasco, just a sense of kind of where you were born, where you grew up, talk about a little bit about your adolescent years and kind of how that led you into the career that you're in now that you obviously are so passionate about. I think that would be a great start. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. I was born in South Philly. So I have that South Philly attitude of, you know, you talking to me? <laughs> and um, look, I learned early on that if you take a no limits approach, anything's possible. You know, my brother was a star athlete. I wasn't, I wasn't very coordinated. I was a little overweight and, you know, had some embarrassing moments, you know, where I was always picked last. And, you know, I just reached this point and said, you know, damn it, you know, like, like, I can do that. So I started, remember, I started uh, doing uh, 200 layups a day, running two miles a day and lifting weights, you know, made the basketball team. I became a marathon runner. And it was like, honestly, you know, one of those seminal moments, damn, you know, I'm not this, you know, fat uncoordinated kid. I can, I can, I can change. And that's been my whole career. I started out, uh, believe it or not, as a disc jockey. 
As somebody reminded me that was back when uh, disc jockeys made uh, less than doctors. Um, but, um, um, you know, I started out as a disc jockey, midnight to five disc jockey, got fired. I was a minor in chemistry through a series of events, ended up in medical school, uh, went into private practice, uh, delivered about 2,500 babies in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Reinvented myself because I happened to see a, uh, a, an academic professor talk to his students about hysterectomy, which was the most performed procedure in the country back then in the 80s. Oh, wow. And, you know, 97% of OBGYNs were men. And he was saying, you know, if you see anything small, just take out the uterus because the woman doesn't need that after childbearing. And I happened to be at Barnes & Noble and four of the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers were what my hysterectomy did to me, the hysterectomy hoax, how hysterectomy ruined my life. So I realized we were, we were basically teaching these students really just the wrong stuff. I left my... I left my private practice, took about a 75% pay cut, went into academics, did some of the initial work on psychological and sexual effects of hysterectomy, went out and worked with some folks on patents of now what we now use to avoid hysterectomy. So again, the second sort of aha moment where, you know, if you're willing to, to take a no-limits approach, you can change things. And then I, you know, I moved up the academic ladder, became a chair. And at my third aha moment... 90s, gatekeepers, managed care, all these doctors are whining about, you know, insurance and healthcare. So I got my MBA mm -hmm. at Wharton at University of Pennsylvania and uh, got about a million dollar grant to look at what makes doctors different than depending on the audience, either other people or normal people in how we handle change. And that led to uh, really being dean of three different medical schools and now CEO of University of South Florida Health, which actually isn't in South Florida. It's in North Central West Florida, which is okay. all you need to know about Florida. And then I'm from, I'm from South Florida, so it's yeah. good to know. And, you know, and, and each, place that I've, each place that I've been, I, I had a year stint where I worked at Apple, which was probably the, the single game changer for me because I was there right before the iPhone and listened to Steve Jobs talk about, you know, his business plan, which was not a hundred page business plan. It was year one, we change year two, we change industry year three, we change the world. And frankly, I've, I've shamelessly uh, ripped that off for what we've tried to do in healthcare at, at both USF and now here. How do we change? How do we change the industry? And in healthcare, how do we change the world so we don't have places like Philadelphia where there are five academic medical centers, but still have the greatest discrepancy in life expectancy of any city in the country? So we've taken a very entrepreneurial, non-academic, non-traditional healthcare ecosystem approach. And I guess what I'd say is we talk about the old math and the new math. Just to give you an example, we invested $40 million in telehealth in 2012. If you can imagine talking to a faculty in 2012 about taking money out of NIH funding and buying a new MRI and investing in something mm -hmm. called telehealth, you know, I might as well be, have been teaching Satanism to, to, to those folks. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, we, we, we took that sort of very Jobsian approach of what's going to be obvious 10 years from now and, and what can we do today? And that's a good part of what's made us successful over the last eight years. You, you mentioned you were, I think you're, and I was reading, you were a chemistry and bio major yeah. for, for, for undergrad. Being, being a disc jockey and, you know, trying to figure out what it is you were trying, what, what you wanted to get into, what was the motivation to major in those areas? Was, was it that you knew down the road you wanted, th those would be kind of a means to an end for something that you wanted to do that was maybe outside of healthcare? What was, what, oh, why did yeah. you focus in those areas? Yeah, it was the opposite. I was really like a journalism minor and, and you know, I had this sort of uh, idiot savant brain where I could memorize anything. So for any of you that are out there that, you know, e either you've gotten into medical school, you have kids trying to get into medical school, you know, the, the, the barrier is organic chemistry. Well, the way my brain was, that was my easiest courses. So I could take organic chemistry, physical chemistry, calculus, and those I didn't have to study, you know, and the, the stuff that required a lot of writing was the stuff that was fun to me. So it was honestly more of a practical thing of, uh, I know I could do well in that stuff, and, uh, and I like science, but I really, wanted, I really did want to be a, 
a writer and a, and a journalist and a disc jockey, you know, and, and that's how I started. But it turned out good that I had taken enough of those chem and bio courses that, uh, that I could actually have a, a job that led to this. Now, now obviously, you're, you're more in a kind of a, a management role being a CEO. Do you ever miss just your time being in private practice and just being more a traditional doctor? Well, you know, I, I, I practiced until this job. So even when I was the dean of Drexel University College of Medicine or the CEO of University of South Florida Health, I practiced, I took call, I delivered babies. This is the first job that, that I haven't practiced in. And frankly, some of it was because in Philadelphia, there's such a um, tough malpractice environment that, you know, the board wasn't thrilled with having a visible CEO of the largest health system in Philadelphia delivering babies at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning and having the... Um, the malpractice attorneys basically, you know, foam at the mouth that, that, boy, this would be a very visible suit. So they asked me not to practice. They, I'm, a, I'm a pilot and a scuba diver. So they, they said, all right, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll allow you to do two of the three, but you can't practice. They, they, they looked at the three high risk things that they thought that I, I might be to the organization. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk a little bit about the pandemic. You, you had mentioned just now that in 2012, you guys were investing, I think it was a sum you, you had said 40 million in telehealth. What was it? in 2012 that brought that on? Well, again, you know, so if you think back to my Apple time, you know, Steve talked about the old math and new math. The old math was computers and operating systems. The new math was this weird thing called digital lifestyle. At Jefferson, we did the same thing. We said the old math is hospital revenue, in-person tuition, and NIH funding. The new math is going to be what we came to call healthcare at any address. You know, when does healthcare join the consumer revolution? And I think what, what I always felt is that at some point, healthcare was going to have to join the consumer revolution. You mentioned the World Economic Forum last year, last January of 2020, which is right before the pandemic at Davos. One of the CEOs of one of the major finance companies came up to me and he said, you know, Steve, um, 30 years ago, the two sectors that had escaped the consumer revolution were banking and healthcare. And then he took a sip of coffee, said, now you're alone. And he's right. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, you know, when I was younger, 30 or 40 years ago, we would have been telling people they could only deposit their check every other Friday because people were lining up every Friday to deposit their check. And, you know, banking went from being incredibly non-consumer centric, predominantly at inconvenient banks, to 90% at home. I firmly believe in my healthcare at any address that 90% of healthcare will, will happen at home. And, you know, we actually, uh, I've written articles of what the pandemic of 2030 looks like, where you're going to sleep with your wearable, which is sending all sorts of signals about your temperature, your 3D printer is making masks. You know, it's a very different model than the ridiculous stuff that existed today where everything started at the hospital and we weren't prepared for it. So I just decided in 2012 to basically go all in with the fact that we will be the academic medical center that's investing in healthcare finally during the consumer revolution. That led to, uh, like the guy I wrote, I wrote the, um, the, the book with, Hey Montanasia, on healthcare, a manifesto for health assurance. He said, wow, you know, a traditional healthcare ecosystem CEO that's willing to think like us. And, you know, um, it's funny because, you know, when we first met, he said, well, you know, what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of a 196-year-old academic medical center, walked into a bar, got married, and had a kid. What would that kid look like? And, you know, move fast and break things with a traditional healthcare ecosystem. At Jefferson, we created that kid. We actually created a joint general catalyst, joint Jefferson digital innovation and consumer experience piece where our entire digital front door is being developed as a partnership with GC. I have GC people on my cabinet. So it's just, um, it's basically 
trying to lead the way from a ridiculous, expensive, fragmented, inequitable, and sometimes unsafe healthcare delivery system and using some of the things that other industries have done to make it much more consumer-centric. So in 2012, for example, when you were, when you were starting to invest in telehealth, was it hard to get people to get their head around this and to acquire funds for it? Or what was the pitch like for this? Well, you know, no, it was almost impossible. I mean, it was like, well, you, you know, because you're talking to faculty that, that, you know, are saying, gosh, you know, if, 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 if you could just give me some more money for NIH funding or, you know, we could get closer to the University of Pennsylvania in, in funding, et cetera. And, you know, I remember having my first faculty meeting and I said, tell me something that will get me excited about Jefferson. And I think one of the faculty members said, well, you know, I think we're number two to Penn, but we're better than Temple and Drexel. I said, well, first of all, I have no idea if any of that's true. <laughs> and, you know, uh, that we're better than anybody. And, and secondly, who cares? You know, and they said, well, if, you know, if you can invest more in this, we can get closer to Penn in NIH funding in U.S. News and World Report. And I said, you know, that'd be like if I was applying for this job and you said the two most important criteria are height and hair. I don't want to be looked at the next 10, 11 years. Can I get closer to, you know, an Ivy League school that, that you know, that has done things a certain way. What if we were the opposite of that? What if we, you know, again, what if we were the Apple in the 90s to, to, to uh, Bill Gates's Microsoft? No, it was not popular at first. It was blunt force. I had to go to every chair and say, if you want to get any incentive this year, you're going to get 70% of your, of your faculty to train on telehealth and do at least one telehealth a month. I mean, just to put this in perspective, a good month a good month um, of telehealth, you know, up till 2019 might have been doing, you know, 500 a month. You know, we do now three, a few thousand a day. And, you know, obviously, you know, part of that was the pandemic. But it's, it's not just telehealth. Again, you, don't, you didn't get up in the morning, Alex, and say, I think I'm going to telebank. It's just that through a variety of, of, of means, your finance and your banking has become very convenient. And we want to be that place. So we just started investing in places, you know, this year, especially with the pandemic. We probably made more net operating income from our co-investments with Silicon Valley than we did from our 14 hospitals and our two campus universities. You know, we were, we were initial investor in American Well. We were co-investor with uh, General Catalyst, which is a company that started Lovongo. Mm -hmm. um, we're in the right place as far as both being a traditional healthcare ecosystem and being ready for the change. What, what I tell all my faculty, I want to be Target and Walmart. You know, when you think about it, when Amazon disrupted that industry, <laughs> There were some folks that said, oh, my God, we got to be all E, like Circuit City. There were some folks like Sears and Penny said, what a stupid fad. Target and Walmart said, we're really good at what we do, but we also have to be able to compete in that new consumer mode. So and they that, went online. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what we're saying. If somebody has pancreatic cancer, we're probably the best place in the country to go. That's, that's not going to change. But 97% of the people in Philadelphia, Alex, are not patients. They're people that would like to be able to thrive without healthcare getting in the way. If Jefferson can be the partner of those diabetic people or congestive heart failure people that don't view themselves as patients, but people, then when they get sick, they're not going to go up and down the expressway and see who has the coolest billboard. They're going to be part of our club. That's basically the differentiator from, frankly, most traditional healthcare ecosystems. So, so do you think telehealth will ultimately be the way to almost 100% treat patients? Or is there still value, from your opinion, in face-to-face -face patient care? Well, there's always going to be value in face-to-face -face patient care. I think one of the things that I think is ridiculous and antiquated is the whole concept of the physical. So my car, Alex, gets better care than I do. So my car sits in the garage, sends continuous data out, 
And, you know, when I start up in the morning, it says, hey, Steve, your right front passenger tire uh, got a little uh, uh, flat while you were uh, sleeping. You know, could you please fill it up before you go get coffee? Not quite like that, but it's close. Yeah. In, in two weeks, I'm going to go to a doctor, get my physical. He's going to tell me you know, my blood pressure is X, my, you know, my EKG is Y, and my uh, calcium score is Z. Here's what I should do for the next 18 months. Well, that's crazy. That's not how anything else works. Right. I mean, you know, your computer's sending sig- yeah, continuous signals, et cetera. So, you know, the, the future I see, it's not just telehealth. The future I th- see is that I go to bed at night with a wearable and, you know, I have, I have some mild asthma. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning and go to my Alexa and say, uh, hey, you know, Alexa, play the daily podcast, you know, before you do that, Steve, your breathing was a little labored and we just looked at the pollen count and it's, it's, it's way high up. So take an extra inhaler and then I'll be happy to play the daily podcast. So I, I see a combination, you know, again, just like bank, I, I know I keep bringing up banking, but banking wasn't just that you could mobilely deposit. It was ATMs, it was mobile deposit, it was things like Vanguard that, that, that democratized, you know, being able to buy two or three shares of something and, you know, just made it really, really easy to do things at home. I think there'll be a combination of technologies that make it easier for everybody to be able to take care of their health at home and only have to go and see a human when that human's needed. When you think about a doctor's appointment, Alex, I mean, you're young, you probably haven't had that many doctor's appointments, but 90% of that doctor's appointment is just getting data, get on the scale, yes. get your blood pressure. Get the, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, what a waste of time. I mean, that's all stuff in every other industry should be done, done at home. There's a model now where you can look into your television if you're diabetic and it can do just as good a job being able to screen people for what's called diabetic retinopathy is going to a doctor. But then if, if you have that, you want to be able to really commune with the human. So people want to be able to thrive without healthcare getting in the way. They want, to, they want to talk to a human when they really need to talk to a human. And most importantly, they'd like healthcare to become a lot more transparent. You know, I need a hip replacement. I run half marathons. I want to know if I go to your place, what, what's it going to cost me? What's my chance of being able to run a half marathon in 18 months based on your outcomes? What do patients say about you? You know, what's your readmission rate? Then I want to go to four-year competitors and do the same thing and, 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 and make a decision. That's so not what happens in healthcare, but that's so exactly what happens if you're scheduling a trip or you're going to Airbnb. And, you know, the great thing about working with Haymon, Alex, is that, that every one of the companies that he started in non-healthcare was disrupting that industry, right? If you think about Airbnb, it was, you know, going to build a bigger, better hotel chain than Marriott, don't build any hotels. You think about Warby Parker, you uh-huh. know, don't, don't build any more lens crafter stores, just Warby Parker, make it easy. Stripe, don't try to compete with Visa and MasterCard on their thing, just make it easy for small business. Exactly. So that, that's, what, that's what we want to be. We want to be the Airbnb, Warby Parker, and Stripe of healthcare. How much does what goes on in Washington, D.C. affect your thinking or your planning or your strategy, whether it's talking about big things like Medicare for all or make the Affordable Care Act better or not use the Affordable Care Act, go a different route? How much of what is being done and talked about in D.C. affects how you, how you manage your organization? Well, it obviously affects us because the government is still the largest payer in, in the country, CMS. But look, here's what I'd say. Here's an objective. It's hard to be objective and non-political in, in today's environment. Yes. But, you know, one of my mentors at Wharton was a guy named Bill Kissick. Dr. Kissick wrote a book like, literally like 35 years ago called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. And if at a cocktail party, you want an honest and non-political way of looking at this, he said, look, 
there's an iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. And if you remember your isosceles triangle, you increase one angle, you got to decrease another. Ninth grade geometry. I didn't do great geometry, but yeah. If you increase access, you either have to increase cost or decrease quality, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you're willing to disrupt the system, the disruption is painful. So literally in the early 90s, he said, if anybody ever tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful, they're not telling the truth. So if you think about the Affordable Care Act, President Obama said, good news, the ACA will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful. That's a quote. So that can't be true. President Trump, I think, said his plan will be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and really huge, and it was none of the four. So at the end of the day, the objective thing is that that every one of our health policies, including the ACA for the last 12 years, says, how do we give more people access to a fundamentally broken, fragmented, expensive, inequitable, and occasionally unsafe healthcare delivery system, and hope the healthcare delivery system will transform. But we don't want to do any of the hard stuff to get it to transform. Why? Because that will upset the pharma lobby. That will upset the insurance lobby. That will upset the hospital lobby. Mm -hmm. But you're going to have to, so if you just think about this logically, Alex, and if anybody listening thinks about it, in every other industry that, that disrupted and said, all right, we're going to give everybody access. We're going to move a dollar and a quarter of healthcare to a dollar. What are the first stocks you would have sold? You would have sold insurance stocks because in essence, they're the, very often the middle people, right? Sure. They get 17 cents a dollar. You would have maybe sold your supply chain stocks because cost for supplies, pharma has to go down. Well, you probably know this, but other than maybe Apple and Amazon, for-profit insurance stocks were the best stock you could get since the ACA. I mean, they've sure. gone up by 11 or 12 times. Pharma stocks have gone up eight or nine times. So how can your supply and your middlemen expand to that level, give everybody access and still decrease costs? You can't. And you mentioned Senator Sanders. I think the pandemic has proven that Senator Sanders was 100% right about the problem. He said, we have this corporate-driven, sick care-driven, hospital-driven, insurance-driven thing that doesn't work for people. I think the pandemic has proven that, right? I mean, your number one reason to die uh, or get hospitalized for COVID had nothing to do with masks, social distancing, or your genetic code. It was your zip code. Because frankly, if you don't have connectivity, then, then you, you weren't able to participate in telehealth or online education. In addition to location, how much of do you think was the fact that a majority of Americans are just unhealthy? And personally, I'm interested in, is obviously location plays a role in act, and connectivity and accessibility plays a role. But how much of the fact that you have so many people in America that either have no access to healthcare because they don't have insurance or they have insurance, they don't know how to use it or they don't know where to go and therefore they're not getting checked out. There's no pre-preventive care. How much did the pandemic expose the fact that people were just generally too unhealthy to begin with? Yeah, well, I think that's true. But 80%, look, 80% of healthcare is what we spend about 10% on. I mean, it's food, education, housing, right? So, I mean, you know, a lot of my passion is around technology and, and, and social determinants. Food deserts are a good example, right? Yeah. So where I live, I can walk to like a Trader Joe's and a Whole Foods. In certain zip codes in Philadelphia, the only place you can walk to is a place that sells chips and sodas, okay? A bodega. All right. Or packs so, and jimmies. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so, but think about this. I mean, but we now have drone delivery. So what if you had enlightened healthcare policy, which said, Mrs. Jones, you're on government um, food support. If you're willing to serve your family healthy food, we'll give you 40% more government food support. And we'll drone deliver it or, or once the card. Well, that would, that would have a huge impact on childhood obesity and, and healthcare. So Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, just gave Jefferson um, $5 million to create this stroke prevention center where he grew up in 18th and Tioga. The fact is, you know, he's, a, he's an African-American man, but an African-American man when he grew up has a 15 times chance of getting a stroke 
than an African-American man where, you know, where, where he lives now. So it's, there's nothing about that location. There's nothing about the genetics. It's about the food. It's about the education. It's about the housing. And we don't spend any money on that. You know, so we, we spend a lot of money on you know, giving money to hospitals, insurance companies, et cetera. So what, what I have really advocated for with the, with the Biden-Harris team is we need a, we need a 9-11 commission for health care. I mean, if you could just imagine, you know, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell getting up, no different than what happened after 9-11 and the Democrats blame the Republicans, the Republicans blame the Democrats. But at yeah. some point, a Democratic senator, a Republican senator got up and said, we failed to keep the country safe. We're going to create this commission under the radar for six months. What if you had McConnell and Schumer get up and say, you know what? We have failed to solve health care in this country. We're the only country that still does not provide access, where people have to you know, mortgage their, their houses for cancer care. We're, we have the largest health care discrepancies by zip code of, 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 of almost any other country. In my specialty, the maternal, mortal, the maternal morbidity and neonatal morbidity rate is somewhere about number 20 or 21 in the world, but we wow. spend three to four times as much per obstetric patient than anybody in the world. So we failed. Let's create a 9-11 commission, you know, bring folks together and look at how we can redo the system. I don't think Medicare for all is the answer for the simple re- All you have to do is look at vaccine distribution. Yeah. <laughs> you want to leave it to the federal, state, and counties to get together and, and, and run healthcare when they can't even figure out who they're going to give vaccines to? I don't think that that's what any of us want. So the, the odds of Schumer and, and McConnell getting up and doing that are very slim, just because for political reasons, the odds of them getting up there and agreeing on anything is, is hard, especially on health care, which is always such a big issue inside Washington, D.C., unless, unless it's being talked about now and I don't know about it. But I would say the odds are less than 50-50 that we would see something like that. So what is the next best option? Well, I think, I think, you know, when you look at how transformation happens, it happens a number of ways. Obviously, health policy can change. And I agree, the only way, it will happen at some point because the bow is going to break. The more we do this, the, the more people are on government. Uh, a place, every place that's done Medicaid expansion, you know, it's been a lot more expensive with a lot worse outcomes. Why? So the way Medicaid expansion goes is we're going to You're give, talking about since the ACA was rolled out. Since the ACA. We're going to give yeah. a lot more people Medicaid. And, we're and going the federal to, government was going to pay for it. And the federal government's going to pay for it. And we're going to take people like you and I and see what, how, what it costs us for health care. And that's what we'll extrapolate that it will cost and what our outcomes will be. But here's the problem. You know, uh, 60% of private doctors in certain specialties in Philadelphia don't, don't accept Medicaid. So Mrs. Jones gets her Medicaid card, says, great, now when, when little Johnny has an earache, I can, I can actually go see a doctor, calls four doctors that don't take Medicaid and ends up in my emergency room where it's five times the cost and more fragmented. So again, you know, um, unless we're going to solve the reasons that folks don't take Medicaid, unless we're going to start to look at why, why are drug prices so high, unless we're going to demand transparency and have hospitals closed that aren't providing the quality for the right cost like we would in any other free market situation. Unless we're going to deal with end of life issues, which we haven't wanted to deal with. We're the only country that doesn't deal with that and get people to hospice at the right time. Unless we really deal with pharma uh, prices and transparency, we're going to constantly be adding cost and having worse outcomes. And, that, and, and, and that's what we have. We've given more people access to this messed up system. It hasn't solved the problem though. I don't think anybody, I mean, I don't think anybody believes that the ACA solved the problem of giving everybody access to, to, to the kind of care they need. But, but Dr. Play, playing devil's advocate, right? For some of these people like Dr. Jones, uh, uh, Mrs. Jones, right, who's trying to get her son to see an ear doctor or for whatever she needs, isn't having access to something 
better than not having access to nothing, which is what which is what was the objective of the ACA, just to get more people coverage at some level. A hundred percent. But then, you know, the, the, the question for Mrs. Jones ought to be, gosh, you know, maybe the first thing we ought to do when we give her Medicaid is make sure that she has a broadband thing so she can utilize telehealth, not sure. just because that's important, but because it's going to be a lot less expensive to us as the CMS paying for her than, than her coming in the emergency room. There's a great Upton Sinclair quote, it goes something like, it's hard to get something, do something, somebody do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And that's, that's really healthcare. If Insurance. You describe healthcare economics, it's that. Yeah. I make a lot of money by having people come into my very expensive, inefficient ED, and the insurance companies will pay for that. And, you know, until the pandemic started, you know, would hardly pay for telehealth at all. It's so incredibly different than any other market-driven economy, where the more people that come in sick with really, with really sick conditions, the more money I'm going to make. Look at insurers, right? I mean, think about a model. Their entire model is based on what's called a medical loss ratio. You've probably heard that, right? Yep. So that means how much can I convince your company to pay me more for insurance this year for your employees? And how little do I have to pay out next year? I mean, that's a medical loss ratio. Sure. That's the business. There's nothing illegal about it. But there's no other country that lives on that kind of fragmented model where our economics are based on having a lot of sick people come to my hospital. Their economics are based on, you know, how can I expand the middle? Pharma economics are based on, here's something bizarre. You know, you watch the morning TV shows, right? Mm -hmm. You ever wonder why there's so many commercials for drugs for stage four lung cancer? I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen these commercials. Do you have stage four lung cancer? You know, ask your doctor about blank. And they show some person that goes from, you know, oxygen to frolicking in the weeds. Why? Because that drug is like (laughs) $400,000. And not everybody is going to benefit from it. But if you have stage four lung cancer and you see that commercial and your doctor didn't recommend that, you're, You're going to be like, say, hey, I want to be like that guy that was frogging with his grandson in the weeds. Why didn't you give me that? Well, our research has shown. So I've had my doctor say, look, I'm trying to do the right thing. This is not, it's not going to hurt her, but she's not going to do a lot better. But if the country's going to let them advertise $400,000 drugs and get people to pressure me for a half hour, I'll give it to her. So, I mean, I think we have this, we, we have this, our whole book was we have this sick care mentality that is based on everybody making more money from people being sick or from expanding the middle or from buying expensive drugs. And that would be great if money was unlimited and we had the healthiest country in the world. But A, money isn't unlimited. And B, when you look at where we are in most parameters, we're like somewhere between, you know, 18 or 19 in health. From what you're saying is that from from my perspective, if you don't take the for-profit motive out of that, how do you change behavior? So I think, because I think, you know, when you look at other markets, so if, if we demanded real transparency, and I think this is where the, the private market will have, we're working with a company that's going to employers and basically saying, look, we can cut your cost by a lot by guiding your patients to the best quality access, cost, and user experience thing. And, and you know, I think, I think where we will move to is a model where it'll be very transparent what the cost is at Jefferson, what the outcomes for that procedure are at Jefferson, what patients say about us at Jefferson are, and then they can go to other places almost like a kayak. And the places that can't make it work will go away, which will be good, or will get, or will get acquired by places 
that are doing a better job. We have 43 hospitals in, in, in Philadelphia. Some are leapfrog D hospitals, that, that's a quality parameter, mm-hmm. at, that are some of the most expensive hospitals. You wouldn't be able to survive if you were selling, you know, if you were selling um, electronics that, you know, that, that, boy, you know, a lot of the things you bought from this company didn't work. And by the way, they were a lot more expensive than Amazon, right? Because that company would, would, would go bankrupt. You know, but, but how many hospitals do you see go away or go bankrupt? So until we get into either a government-run or a market-driven approach, and in a market-driven approach where consumers really know what they're getting and how much it's costing, then I at Jefferson have to continue to make my quality better at a lower cost. And I, th- I, I do believe that'll happen. Timeline for that, would you say? I'd say five years. I think we'll start to see some more and more models, not coming from the government, but coming from some of the Silicon Valley folks that are really starting to, um, you know, there's one company we're working with that's really taking on the 5% of people, underserved people that use 50% of the resources and really going out to their homes with community health workers and technology. We're working with Comcast around, you know, getting people um, uh, uh, broadband, bad, bad zip codes, broadband. We're working with company Novartis because they've looked at cardiovascular risk being 20 times greater in certain zip codes about how we can get out to barber shops and how we can use technology mm-hmm. in a different way. So I, I, I do, I'm optimistic that some of those market things will happen because again, if they don't, the bow's just going to break. It's not a libertarian thing. It's just that you can't expect government to solve an industry's problem. I, I don't believe. It's more so sounds like obviously working together, the private and the public sector working together for obvious objectives that make sense for consumers. And in this case, patients, which sounds like you've been advocating for forever. And it's, yeah. if, if there was no coronavirus, do you think that timeline still would have been the same or we'd still be light years away from this? I know. I, I, think, I think it still would have been the same. Look, I think there's nothing that happened during the pandemic that we didn't already know. As, as much as people like to say that changed everything, we're, you know, we're already seeing some clawbacks, for example. Look, when I started telehealth, Alex, we came up with a model at Jefferson. We came up with a model that we could move 50% of our patients out of our expensive, inefficient emergency room. And, you know, it was led by a group of emergency medicine docs, our entire team. They were just amazing. If I had done that, I would have gone bankrupt. Because insurers were happy to pay me $1,500 on average for a patient to come to my emergency room and $49 on average if we did telehealth, urgent care, or an appointment the next day, which is much better for the patient, right? Mm -hmm. So what we did is we started it with our employees. We have 35,000 employees. So what we did is we said, new rule, if you show up to our emergency room, it's $500 deductible. If you get to our emergency room through Jeff Connect, our telehealth platform, it's a zero deductible. And we were able to change the behavior that way. But there, we were both the payer and the provider and the employer. So, so we were able to give a much better user experience and, and, and save costs. So until you get, I think the one thing that's become incredibly clear, Alex, is you have to have payer-provider alignment. Look at what happened during uh, COVID. American hospitals lost hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of, of billions of dollars, actually. Jefferson had a $390 million swing between where we would have been and where we ended up. You know where that $390 million went? Not to the patients. It went to the insurers. Why? Yeah. The insurers have gotten all the money up front saying, this is what we'll be paying out for electricity. Didn't have to pay it out. And if you owned United stock or Cygnus stock or Humana stock, you had your best year ever. So again, there's nothing wrong with that, except the fact that you know what, what I think is coming out of that is we have to have a more aligned situation. By the way, it used to be, 
that, that hospitals would hold insurers hostage and just demand that they, you know, give them 7% more for no apparent reason. None of that is any good. And, and that's why healthcare is out of control. So I think, so I'm going to give you like, again, an example where technology is helping. I'm sure you've had this happen, but my daughter got, um, had a, 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 a delivery during the pandemic. She has, she uses my house as her address and she's gotten 62 letters from the insurance company and, and the provider bills. Most of them start out with, this is not a bill. Then why the <laughs> heck are you sending me this ridiculous thing if it's not a bill, right? So, so there's two companies. One started out in digital payment billing for, um, for insurers. One started out digital payment billing for consumers. And now they're actually coming together. So the concept will be that, you know, whether it's Independence Blue Cross or Aetna and Jefferson, we'll, we'll have a single, you know, dual logo piece and you'll get a bill, you won't get those 62 things. And I'll say, Alex, you came into the hospital and, and had a, uh, an arthroscopy and you know, a cartilage uh, 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 removed. Here's what you owe and why. Because all the sausage will have happened with AI and whatever between the two. Well, that's huge. And there's no reason that shouldn't happen. It's part of the problem though, is that you, you Alex, consumers haven't demanded it, right? So you yeah. haven't had your I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore moment with, with healthcare the way you've had with other, other industries. Yeah, and, and I would think just as a, as a layman to this, part of the reason is because I don't know how much people feel in healthcare as the consumer they can actually change, um, how much power they, they may have. Because I think most people probably think of the fact that, oh, well, you know, if I get somewhat sick, I call my doctor who I see once a year. If I get really sick, I go to the nearest hospital system. But they, I don't think, like you said, the, the sausage, the sausage making, they don't realize, maybe they just don't realize the power that they have in this. Yeah, but I think it's changing. So we, we're, we've been looking to start, a, I'm, I'm an obstetrician, a match.com between obstetricians and patients. Think progressive insurance, right? Yeah. So it used to be, when I started my practice, a 28-year-old would be late for a period. She'd go to her 65-year-old male primary care doc and say, you know, <laughs> congratulations, Mrs. Sobel, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Clasco. And they'd say, oh, thank you so much. I'm sure he's the best. Well, I think you know enough about, you know, millennial folks today that the chances that, you know, a 25, 26, 30-year-old woman for the most important thing in their life will say, oh, sure, 65-year-old guy. Uh, for the most important thing in my life, I'll absolutely go to the guy you play golf with or who is in your system. <laughs> I won't do it is like, is like none, right? They'll say, well, yeah, yeah. thank you very much. That might be who you'd go to if you get pregnant, which you're not going to. But I'm going to go on the internet, talk to friends. So, you know, the, the model we're looking at is, hi, I'm, I'm Mrs. Jones, 28. I live in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I want a predominantly female group that will accept my door. And I want to know what people say about you. I want to know what your quality is. And you can compete for my... But isn't, isn't that, don't we have some of that line now with like ZocDoc or Health Grades or some of these other kind of kayak style doctor websites? Yeah, but some of that is a little bit of pay to play. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, yes. I mean, I think those are all advances, ZocDoc, Health Grades, some of the telehealth pieces, but it's still not as democratic as, as other parts of what you do, I would say. So, so if hypothetically, doctor, if I, if I were someone was to give you a magic wand and and said, listen, you can do whatever you want. You can change whatever you want as long as the best possible outcomes for patients and for hospitals is the result of this. What, what would be the things that you would do immediately that would, that would just change things for the better without even hesitation? 
So the first thing I would do is demand that there be alignment between a payer and a provider, that literally a patient has total transparency in what she's getting. And, you know, if I ruled the world, the first thing I would say is, look, you need to move to a model where a patient knows exactly what the outcomes are at your place, exactly what it's going to cost before she, she, she gets there, exactly what folks have said about you. And any place that doesn't do that isn't going to get, get government funding. That's number one. Number two, I would have a um, universal connectivity act that literally either makes that uh, connectivity utility, which I know the, the internet and cable companies don't want, or you know, creates some model where um, everyone, everyone gets connected. So those, you know, whether it's Comcast or Verizon, that, that literally everybody has an opportunity to take advantage of, of those. I would, I would nationalize telehealth in, in this way. I can practice in 48 states if I'm sitting in that state. I can only do telehealth in about 16 states because a lot of the state medical societies don't want me going telehealth into their state. So Alex, imagine when ATM started, if you needed a different ATM card for every state with a different code, that wouldn't have been very convenient, right? So what mm -hmm. they did is they basically said that states can't create, you know, uh, individual banking things. So I, I, would make, I would make that a rule. I would not give any federal money for public health to any individual university or health system in an area. I would, I would give the money for the five of them to work together around reducing uh, social determinants and so that, you know, you're not just giving money to analyze, you know, what's wrong. And then finally, what I would do is literally um, create some models around innovation that allow, allow health systems to co-invest with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs to make some of these, you know, really more than transformational changes. I would create some end of life models that make it easier for folks to get to things like hospice. We're the only country that doesn't have as robust a hospice opportunity. And partly that, that is again, the profit motive. If your great uncle Frank is 95 and has had a stroke and is going to live for another two weeks, people, and it's not advertent, but there's a lot of money made by dialyzing uh, great uncle Frank for two weeks. You know, uh, the, the dialysis company makes it, the hospital makes it, the doctor makes it, you know, almost every other country deals with that in a very different way of, you know, you know, what's, what's great uncle Frank's transition. So I think, you know, there's six or seven things you could do. I, I would change the way that, that I pay doctors. I mean, think about this, you know, dermatologists in certain areas make 10 times what family docs make, but we want the family docs to be the quarterback. You know, as my head of family practice says, you know, you want me to be the quarterback, stop paying me like the kicker. You know, you're paying yeah. your surges. So we've got, we've had this very, again, it's like the sick care mentality. We've had this very specialist mentality. So most medical staffs are run by specialists. This is where the positive feedback cycle happens. So you've got the specialists are making the most money. They're bringing in the most money for the hospital. They end up being the most politically important in, in, in a hospital system, mm -hmm. which just perpetuates that sick care mentality, as opposed to the public health clerks or the family docs who are sort of in the bottom of the totem pole as far as uh, how they're getting paid and where they are politically, who would be much more toward community medicine. And then we're amazed that we're investing all our money in sick care. One, th one thing that I know healthcare has been trying to solve for a while is interoperability and being able to have all these different systems talk to each other to understand a patient's whole entire healthcare journey from, you know, I don't even know if they go to birth, but as, as far back as they possibly go. I had on this podcast a very fascinating uh, gentleman 
he was a guy named Pradeep Goyle. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. He had done the IT infrastructure for the Obamacare exchanges, the healthcare savings accounts when uh, Bush Jr. was in charge. And he's running an organization that's trying to transform healthcare through blockchain technology. And talking about patient journeys and everybody having license to their own information. How, how much? How much is of what of what needs to be done inside healthcare? I'm curious from your perspective is understanding and being able to have a whole entire 360 degree picture of someone's health. Yeah, look, I think that's, that's an incredibly important part of it. I mean, what, what, where I think things will happen, again, I'm not sure what the timeline will be, maybe five to 10 years, where you will own all your data. I mean, think about how asinine it is. Yes. That, that if, you, if you're going to see a cardiologist and you decide to see a different cardiologist, you got to go and call them up or see them and say, uh, could you please send my records to, yep. to your competitor? Well, why? Why are you leaving us? I mean, you know, if you go from Wells Fargo to Bank of yep. America, you don't have you to, don't have to ask. Permission, right. So, so the, the, the way I see it is you'll own your records in the cloud. It'll be password protected. If you were seeing me and want to go see another doctor, you just change your password. You don't have to tell me anything. You just you say, uh, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be seeing you. Here's my password so you can get all my records. And you're not my patient anymore. I don't have your records. And all, all you need, and we've actually talked about this, is you need some fail-safe codes. So if somebody gets run over by a bus or is in our trauma center and can't give us that code, that each emergency room would have some yeah. fail-safe codes where we could open up anybody's. And, um, you know, those, those would be audited. Sure. You know, I mean, because right now, again, it, it's fragmented. You have Epic, you know, uh, you know, which is the major uh, mm-hmm. MR and, and, you know, whether or not that communicates with uh, somebody else. And President Biden talks about when, you know, his son was in our entity when he was getting treated for cancer and went back and forth between Jefferson and MD Anderson. We had two different EMRs. And, you know, he's very eloquent in talking about how he literally had to take like a CD and fly it out to MD Anderson. Because even though we had both had EMRs, they didn't talk to each other. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's insane. And then you have, you know, again, getting back to the fragmentation, if I'm trying to look at readmissions, most insurers will let me know about anybody that's been readmitted to my place. But if they get readmitted to a competitor, they might not share that data because they don't want me to know what they pay the competitor. So, so, you know, we do not have a very democratic interoperable system. We do have some good healthcare information exchanges. We're working with General Catalyst on a company. It's called Comure. It stands for Community Cure. That would be a layer on top of the traditional EMRs that would make everything totally interoperable using a fire, a fire FHIR layer. So I think you'll start to see some innovations like that. Why? Because I think people are looking finally and saying, you know, it's your point. What is different about healthcare? I mean, yeah. look, God forbid, Alex, somebody has pancreatic cancer, you don't care about any of this. You want to go to the best surgeon. But if you need an arthroscopy or you need a knee replacement or a hip replacement, honestly, there are 40 really, really, really good orthopedists in, in the Philadelphia area with, with very similar outcomes. So there's no reason you shouldn't be treated wonderfully by that person, right? I, I, I did an article that I got in trouble for. It said people have too much respect for the healthcare system. And it started out with, if you have an appointment at eight o'clock, and your doctor shows up at 8.45, 85% of the time a patient will go, oh, that's okay, Dr. Clasco, I'm sure you had an emergency. I no. said, that's true about 10% of the time. <laughs> the other 90%, he or she was at Grand Rounds, or they were, but they were used to the fact they could show up 45 minutes late, and patient would, would excuse them. You wouldn't excuse your realtor, you wouldn't excuse anybody doing anything else. Well, the fact is, 
I think we're getting to the point where people will stop excusing that and say, you know, boy, there are other good orthopedic surgeons I could go mm-hmm. to. I'm going to show up 45 minutes later, not answer my call. I'll just go to somebody else. Um, and I think once we get to that point where you can see outcomes and realize the, the, the guy or woman I'm going to is not like, you know, Albert Schweitzer, the only person that can do this procedure. I mean, unless it is a very, very, very differentiated procedure, you'll demand that kind of, that kind of consumer and human empathy and recognize that if you're not getting that, there's probably somebody equally technically as good that will give you that. From everything you're saying, informing people of what they have control of and educating them is going to be a huge or is a huge challenge. Yeah, like I you think- said, people are excusing doctors for being late and just things like that just because I just don't know just as a regular guy, not in healthcare, like how much, I don't know, control or how much they know about what's going on ins- inside the industry that could be benef- better for them. I think people are just used to what they're used to. Yeah. So I think what you'll start to see, you know, you know, when you ask the timeline, I think, look, I think what you'll start to see is some companies that are creating that transparency. Mm. You know, when you said like, what, you know, is, is it going to be government? Is it going to be, if you think about this never ending thing of we're spending more and more, uh, you know, more and more money for care that's not necessarily uh, better or, or, you know, and we're still having people have to mortgage their house, it's going to change. I think you're going to see private industries start to start to take advantage of that. There's companies that are going to these large companies and saying, hey, we'll reduce your healthcare costs by a third. You can get rid of your health benefits, people that don't really understand health, because we'll direct them toward the best access, quality, user experience, and cost base. So this is what will happen, Alex, I think, in the future. If you need that hip replacement, somebody will tell you, here's Jefferson's uh, outcomes, here's what patients say about them, and it'll be $500 of your money. You know, here's Abington Hospitals, here's their outcomes, it'll be $250 of your money. Here's Penn's, here's, it'll be $1,500 of your money. And you'll look at, at all of that and say, you know, boy, the outcomes are pretty similar. You know, patients actually think that this person's a lot nicer. Let me give you one final example. My daughter works or worked at the uh, university hospital that I was part of and ran in Tampa. She calls me up one day and she says, uh, dad, what do, what do you think about, and it was a small hospital outside of Tampa. So you're, you're, you know, you're right on the, you know, university hospital campus. Why are you asking? Well, she has the kind of insurance I think most people have. It's like $300 a month. Mm-hmm. That's like a $3,500 deductible. So she said it's, it's, it's all, uh, what is it? Um, sorry. Um, catastrophic care. Yeah, yeah. So, so she says $800 of my money. It's a small procedure, but it's $800 of my money if I have it at the hospital that you guys ran. It's $200 of my money if I, had it, if I have it at that other hospital. She said, oh, by the way, I went on healthgrades.com. They have the same grade. Oh, one more thing, Dad. I went on patientslikeme.com. Do you know that the staff is friendlier and the waiting rooms are cleaner than, than <laughs> the hospital you ran? Uh, and by the way, that, that $600, that's a weekend in Miami, dude. So, so, you know, what am I, so I think you're going to start to see some of that because folks of that age, you know, don't necessarily wake up with the same kind of respect and, and they've, they've lived their whole life of, you know, if Amazon doesn't have it, I'll go on, you know, eBay. And if eBay doesn't have it, I'll go on, you know, it's not like, oh, I have to get this product. Sure. I think as our listeners could tell, I would love to keep talking to you about this stuff. This has been a great conversation. Different than I anticipated. I knew we were going to jump right into it, but I thought, or I wish I should say that we had a little bit more time. Fascinating fascinating stuff that you're doing and you know when when time permits doctor i'd love to have you on for a part two uh, more so when you know things things are changing and you know the pandemic continues to quiet down but thank you so much for the time and i 
you know, I, for one, love chatting with you. So thanks so much. And I appreciate everything you guys are doing about getting digital health out there into the mainstream. I think that that communication is incredible. We're trying. We're trying to do our part. We're not the health care experts, but we're, we're, the, we're the connecting people experts. Amen. So, um, All good. yeah, no, it's great to talk to you. Thanks again so thanks. much. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out our other episodes. You can listen on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe. And for more information, you can visit mill-all.com.